Well, good evening. Welcome back to our study of the apocalypse, the revelation of John. And uh, as I've mentioned before, our goal in this series is that when we're through with Revelation, you will not be intimidated by Revelation. It will be very understandable uh, to us all. Let me start by saying during class, so if you're watching us online, as long as you're live streaming, you can text uh, questions to that number and we have no idea where it comes from and you're welcome to text in questions and we'll answer as many as we can. However, in this series, and in, in a lot of series actually, we can never get to all the questions. So on your handout is a little QR code, and if you just point your camera at that on your phone, it will take you to a website. And, it, uh, and if you also have a podcast app, which you, you do, you may or may not use it, but if you will just search for So We Speak, you'll find a podcast that's a weekly podcast but on Friday mornings, we'll release a podcast that you can listen to from anywhere that will have all the extra questions. So it's just something you can listen to on Fridays if you want to and pick up a lot of extra questions. Also going into uh, kind of a little bit more in depth. I think on last Friday's podcast, which you can listen to these anytime, I think we talked about uh, can you lose your salvation? So, you know, little things like that just come up on the podcast questions. So... Let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right in. Lord, thank you for the privilege of living where we live. Thank you for the blessings that you've given to us. Father, I lift up to you the cares and the concerns and the praises and the thanks from everyone in the sound of my voice. I thank you, Father, that we can study together. Thank you for all those on, online that are studying with us that we can come together with open hearts and minds and look into your word. I pray your blessings tonight in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we are going to uh, start into another section of the book of Revelation. So the first three chapters are a vision that John has, and he's going to have all these visions while he's, a pr when I say a prisoner, he's on a penal colony. And so it's, it's an island, the island of Patmos. So it's not like he's got a guard standing right beside him. I mean, you can't get off the island, you can't leave the island, so, but he's, imprisoned there and he has this vision and he has a series of visions. And so the first three chapters, he has a vision and he sees Jesus walking amongst seven lampstands, holding in his hands seven stars. And so that's the vision that he sees in chapters one through three. Chapter four, which we begin in this lesson, chapters four and five, begins another vision that he's going to have. So let me pause since we have a question already. Yes. This isn't personal, is it? I mean. Yes. <laughs> Would you go back to your introduction and tell us who you are and how you pronounce your name, please? How do I pronounce my name? Okay, that's, that's a fair question. So my name is Terry Fakes and uh, you would need inspiration of the Holy Spirit to look at my name and pronounce it correctly. So it's pronounced like F-A-K-E-S, and I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff here at Crossings. So thank you, and thanks for reminding me of that. People see that name and they go, have no idea who that guy is. So, so in the first three chapters, the vision was, and Jesus explains the vision. He says, these lampstands that you see represent seven churches in Asia, 
which modern day Turkey. And he says, and I want you to write what I tell you. And he dictates letters to each of the seven churches. Now the fact that there are seven should tip us off that maybe this is more than just letters to seven churches because the number seven is in apocalyptic literature, Revelation and other uh, literature that uses this kind of style, seven is the number of completeness, wholeness, it's kind of the perfect number. So you get the idea that maybe this is to all churches of all time. This is to all Christians of all time. And so he has that vision. Now when we looked at these churches, we saw that they had two challenges. They were, some were being more faithful than others. And remember, this is about a generation after they were founded. If you assume that the book of Revelation is written about 95 AD, and we're just gonna use that as a working assumption. I know there's some disagreements. These churches were founded about 40 years earlier. And so a generation later, are they being faithful? And many of them are. But they have two challenges. They have challenges from within. They have Christians who are trying to compromise with the culture and are teaching people that it's okay to engage in sexually immoral practices and it's okay to interact with idols in the culture. They also have challenges externally from the Roman Empire and from others, Jewish and other people that are persecuting them economically because they don't worship the gods of the culture. And so I wanted to, before we go into the next vision, because I want you to get an idea of the idea of power. A lot of what the book of Revelation is about is where is the actual power in the world? Well, if you're in one of these churches and you're suffering persecution, the government looks awfully powerful to you. So I wanted to show you something from history that really gives you an idea of what's happening in these churches at this time. So let's take a look. First of all, look at the map. This province of Asia, you see here Ephesus, one of the seven churches. Our seven churches are right in this area I've marked in the western part of Turkey, Roman province of Asia. The person I'm about to talk about, a man, a Roman named Pliny, he was the governor of this territory, Bithynia and Pontus. And I'm gonna show you some letters that he wrote in about 111 to 113 AD. So I just wanna frame this for you before I show you what these letters are because this is eyewitness to what's happening to these churches. So this is in the same general area and Pliny is the governor of this area, you should assume that the same policies are being carried out by the governor of the Asia policy. This letter is written in about 95 AD, the, the letter of Revelation, saying you have great persecution. These letters are historically dated to about 15 years later. So in other words, what I'm about to show you is the Roman point of view of the persecution of these churches. So I wanna make it a little more real to you by just pulling uh, some things from history. Pliny uh, kept letters and many, many of them, a whole volume, I've got a volume of Pliny the Younger's letters that he has written uh, 2,000 years ago. 
and they've remained to this day. And so I wanna show you one of the letters that's important to us and read it to you. This is a portion of it. So he's writing to the emperor Trajan. So in 111 AD, uh, this is Pliny the Younger, and what does that mean? He's junior. His dad was Pliny the Elder, so that's just Pliny Junior. And this is the Roman emperor in 111 AD. His name is Trajan. And so he's in Rome, and Pliny is out here, the governor of a province, and he's got a problem with these people called Christians. And so here's his letter. He said, it is my practice, my Lord, referring to Trajan, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who could better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. By the way, that lets you know that Christ followers were being called Christians commonly, at least by 111 AD. All kinds of little clues, interesting clues in here. I've never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses we should punish or investigate and to what extent. I've been a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age. I mean, do you treat old Christians and young Christians differently? Uh, difference between the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted if they repent, meaning if they will turn away and say, I no longer want to be a Christian. Or if a person has once been a Christian, does they're just always a Christian. It does him no good. In other words, we can punish somebody even if they do repent. Even the name itself, without any offenses, in other words, can you be punished just because you're a Christian, or do you have to have done something offensive, like failure to sacrifice to the idols? He said, look, I don't really know exactly. Are they, are they lawbreakers just because they're Christians, or are they lawbreakers because Christians won't worship the gods? He said, look, I, got, I need to know. And he said, meanwhile, in, those, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, and by the way, this is how they typically, Christians typically got in trouble. It wasn't because the government had a sting operation, it's because their neighbors would turn them in. And so this is very, very common. I have observed the following procedure when someone's been accused of being a Christian. So listen to this. I interrogated them as to whether or not they were Christians. And those who said they were, I interrogated them a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. And listen to his logic. He said, I had no doubt that Whatever is wrong with being a Christian, their stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. I mean, this is the Roman Empire. It says, I'm not even sure exactly what we're punishing them for, but the fact that when I told them to repent and give up their gods, they wouldn't do it. Well, you can't have that. And so I killed them. And so I want you to see what's happening there. He goes on and he says this. This is interesting, for many persons of every age, every rank, not just poor people, rich people, uh, all kinds, and of both sexes, are and will be endangered. In other words, Christians have infiltrated every socioeconomic class of society. Slaves, freeborn, high noble people, workers, male, female, everything. 
For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. It does seem possible to check it and cure it. He was very, very wrong about that. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted. I mean, I want you to think about this. The Romans first noticed this because people aren't sacrificing at the temples very much anymore. Why is that? Because so many people have become Christian, they no longer will worship those gods. And the Romans look at that and go, I'll bet the gods are really mad at us, thanks a lot, Christians, and blamed every bad thing that happened on the Christians. And so it became a capital offense just to be a Christian. And this is at the time of these letters being written. He said, uh, we're I can see an uptick, now that we started to kill the Christians, I can see an uptick in sacrifices and that sort of thing, he said, because used to be nobody wanted sacrificial animals. But I think I can turn this thing around. Hence, it is easy to imagine a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. In other words, repent or die. Deny Christ or die. So here's what Trajan sends back. Trajan says this, you observe proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They're not to be sought out. In other words, at this point, that will change, by the way. But in 111 AD, they're not hunting Christians. You would have to be turned in by somebody and then they would bring you in and say, I need you to deny Christ or I'm gonna kill you. It will change later. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule. They're not to be sought out, but if they are denounced and proved guilty, meaning you ask them and they say they are, they are to be punished. With this reservation, whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, he will obtain pardon if he's willing to denounce Christ and serve our gods. And there were Christians who did who did do this. So the reason I, I show that to you is this, these are matters of historical record. This has nothing to do with the Bible. And I want you to see how it corroborates what's happening in the Bible and what the Bible's saying. But also I want you to get a feel for what's happening to the churches then. And I'm gonna argue that that persecution has continued in various places throughout all of history. So why am I telling you that? So now you understand what the churches are experiencing because John is about to see another vision. And from chapter four to chapter 19 is what's called the tribulation. Most people think the tribulation means, oh no, it's a tribulation because bad things are happening to the earth and to the people on the earth. That's not actually what's happening. What's happening is God is beginning to judge the earth. So it's not a tribulation, we just misnamed it in some sense. It's actually a record of the judgment of God on those who have persecuted his people. Does that make sense? So now you see the persecution and here comes the judgment of God to say, I will do justice for my people. That's what's actually happening in chapters four through 19. Okay, so I wanted to set that up for you as we launch into the next vision. Question. Yes, do you think the visions happened consecutively or do you think they happened over a longer period of time? 
That is a really good question. If I understand what, what you're saying, I'm gonna answer it in two slides. So if I don't, text in. But I think I know what you're saying and it's an important point. So thank you for mentioning it. So before we jump into chapter four, while I answer that question, I wanna remind you of the four approaches. So these are four ways of understanding what is happening in this period of tribulation, four through 19. Everybody agrees this is God's judgment on humanity. The question is, when are the events that these visions portraying, when are those events gonna happen? So preterists said they already have. Historicists said all the way from the first coming of Christ to the second. And then in this lesson, I'm gonna focus on the futurist and the symbolic views. I'll get to all of them, but this lesson really highlights some differences. Futurists say everything that you read about in chapter four to 19 and all the events that they're describing are all going to happen in a seven year period in the future. And you'll see why seven years as we get on into the book. And so that's gonna happen seven years into the future. And that seven years, when's it gonna start? Well, that's the interesting question, isn't it? And uh, I'll tell you later. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, all I can say is sell your stock, buy gold. No, I, uh, the symbolic point of view says actually it may indeed be happening at some point in the future, but those events, remember what those events are? God's judgment on those who are opposing him in the world and those who are persecuting his people has actually recurred. There's been persecution over and over and over and over. It's not just in the future. So they don't disagree about the truth of the visions. They just agree, okay, when are those things gonna happen? That makes sense? So it's just a different point of view of when they will happen. So let's look at uh, chapter four. So here's the beginning of the next vision. After this, after chapters one through three, after that vision, and I wrote down the letters to the churches, I looked and behold, I saw a door standing open in heaven. So the first vision was of Jesus and writing letters to churches, and now he sees a door open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, I mean, it was loud, it said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So this is a new vision. John's not in heaven. John is seeing a vision of heaven. Make sense? And he says, this is a vision that I saw. I wasn't transported to heaven and then came back to earth and wrote a book. Okay, it's no, it's I saw what is happening in heaven. So let's talk about this timeline. I think I understand what you're asking here. So a futurist point of view tends to take the chapters and the visions in the book of Revelation in a linear chronological order. So first, you have the letters to the seven churches. Then you have the vision in the throne room, which is chapter four and five. Then you have the opening of the seven seals. Then you have the sounding of the seven trumpets. Then you have the pouring out of the seven bowls. In other words, as we go through it, they would say chapter one happens, then chapter two happens, then chapter three happens, etc. A linear chronological order, okay? Which is going to be important in the next slide I'm gonna show you. The symbolic point of view says, actually, 
There's no guarantee, and in fact, most people don't think these events happen. Chapter three happens, then chapter four happens. It's just the order in which he saw the visions. First, he had a vision of the churches, then he had a vision of the throne room, and then he's gonna have some other visions as far as when those things are gonna happen. They don't necessarily have to happen in that order. Am I making sense? But he saw the visions in that order. So that's gonna change the way you see the chronology, and I'm gonna show you a chart in just a second, and you'll see, okay, this is why futurists think this is the way it's gonna happen, because they see these things in a linear chronological order. Question? Okay, I think the original question is about John seeing the visions, not about what will happen, but about John seeing the visions. Was it like, it just, he had this one long night and it all happened one right after the other and that was that? Or did this happen over a period of days or weeks or months that he saw the visions? Yeah, the text doesn't say over what period of time. But that's a good question because as you read prophets in the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets, the 12 at the end of your Old Testament, because they're shorter books, you kind of read through it and you go, wow, that was a great week of preaching. But actually that was probably a 30 year career. And so in other words, you'd get this vision and you would preach it to Israel. And maybe two years later, you'd get another message from God and you'd go preach it to everybody else. So there could be time. There could be time in between these visions. The general thinking is because of the specific way it's worded in chapter one, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I saw a vision. That is not conclusive, but typically most people think all this was given in a very short period of time. But I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. That's a good question. Okay, so where are we in this book? We're seeing a, th a vision of the throne room. And so if you, certain futurists say, after the letter to the seven churches, then John sees a vision and this phrase, come up here and I'm gonna show you what is gonna happen, is a veiled reference to something called the rapture. And so it is a reference that before all the judgments of God begin to happen to the earth, that believers will be taken off of the earth. Some futurists think this, some don't, but futurists do tend to look at it this way, and this is probably the most popular view. So I'm gonna show you a chart. This is a futurist vision of this time frame. Symbolic, historicist, preterist, this is not their view of the timeline, but you'll notice it's very linear. So you have the cross of Christ, let's call that, I don't know, 30 AD. Then you have what's called the church age. And obviously we're sitting here in 2023, somewhere in the church age, right? Before the rapture or before the coming of Christ. So this period is called the church age. So all the way from the cross until some point in the future, for a futurist, until the, dis, until the tribulation starts, is the, is the church age. So we're in the church age. But at the end of the church age, futurists say, which is chapter three, God talking to the churches, chapter four says, after that, futurists say, meaning after the church age, some point in the future, John 
being pulled up to heaven means right before all this bad stuff starts to happen, and it starts to happen here really pretty quickly, that the church is going to be taken off of the earth. The believers are gonna be taken off and they won't have to endure that seven years of trials and tribulations, okay? That's pretty thin. I mean, in the sense that that's not clear, but this is the way many futurists read it. So first of all, what is the rapture? <laughs> the rapture is, is considered to be an event referenced in two other places, although you won't see the, the literal idea of a rapture. Rapture's not really mentioned in the New Testament, but the idea of a rapture, futurists see it in the New Testament. And that is the idea that you'll be going along one day and chapter four is about to start happening. So in other words, tribulation, God says time. We're gonna start judgment, right? And the seven year counter is gonna start. And I need to get all the true believers. And so you would literally go poof and be rise to meet Jesus in the air and you would just, you wouldn't be here anymore. You would go. This, this is the Left Behind series. It is this particular view of the book of Revelation. Okay, so it's probably a little bit familiar to you. But the rapture is Jesus coming into the air. It doesn't come to the earth, just comes down in the air and catches people up to meet him. Here's one of the passages in 1 Thessalonians 4. So this isn't in the book of Revelation. This is written uh, probably 35 years earlier by Paul to some Christians in the town of Thessalonica. According to the Lord's own word, he says, I'm gonna tell you what, that we who are still alive, who are here when the Lord comes, will not precede those who are dead. They were worried like, oh no, if somebody died before Jesus came, will they go to heaven? He goes, oh, absolutely. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and those who are dead will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, when the tribulation starts, this is how Futurist reads this, will be caught up. Will be caught up is the Latin word, uh, this for you um, Latin scholars, that's the Latin word, but it's where we get our word raptor. So this is written in Greek and it was translated into Latin and used for a thousand years. Greek, that's not the Greek word. Rapture doesn't come from Greek, but it comes from that Latin word, which means to catch up, to snatch, which is why birds of prey that are raptors are called raptors because they snatch their prey. And so this is where the rapture, that phrase comes from, is Jesus will come down in the air and in some sense snatch up the believers from, from the earth. And we will, be with the, we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And so the thinking of the futurists is, and this is the most popular option, is what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. That means you get out before the bad stuff starts, before the tribulation. And so right at the beginning of this seven years, so this is seven years, and this is chapter four through 19 that the church, meaning believers in Christ, will be taken up to heaven and will not endure uh, what's gonna happen next. That is the rapture. Now, to be fair, what do the other 
beliefs think, or what do other people think who don't believe in the rapture? Everybody believes in the second coming of Christ. That's kind of part of being a Christian. Okay, so all these views believe in the second coming of Christ. But you'll notice that this futurist view sees the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, and then seven years later, there's the second coming of Christ to rule on the earth. Other points of view don't see a difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Everybody believes Christ is gonna come again. Everybody believes 1 Thessalonians is true. The difference is pre-tribulation rapture says, Jesus comes, grabs the Christians, I'll be back. That was a reference to Terminator, and never mind. All right, so, and then seven years later, Jesus returns to judge the world, okay? It's possible to say, no, I think you're wrong about that. I think it all happens right here, and some futurists do. They see the rapture in the second coming, it's called a post-tribulation, meaning at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes for the first and last time, right? Does that make sense? I want you to see the differences in the view of what the rapture is. So some futurists believe pre-tribulation, church leaves before the seven years, then Jesus comes back. Some believe in mid-tribulation, I'll show you that when we get to it in the text, that Jesus comes and takes the Christians about halfway through the seven-year period, and then others say he comes at the end. You know how many people want to be raptured at the end of seven years of suffering? It's not the most popular view, I'll just tell you that. So hopefully that un helps us understand a little bit of what the rapture is, and the reason I bring it up now is because the most popular futurist view, kind of the left-behind view, is that right at chapter four, right as the tribulation starts, right as God starts judging, that's when the church is taken off of the earth. The believers are taken off of the earth. So I'm talking about the tribulation or the rapture now because that futurist view, which is very popular, thinks that right then in the future is when the rapture will happen, okay? Not all futurists believe that, but it is probably the most popular view. And so futurists who hold this view tend to look at world events, and we'll talk about this more as we go, tend to look at world events and say, when is the tribulation coming? When do things get bad enough and what are the signs that the tribulation is really close to happening? Because that's when we're gonna get raptured and the Christians are gonna get raptured. Of course, the Left Behind series is kind of about what happens to the people that are left behind. And I will say that during this tribulation, if you hold to this view, you don't think that believers are there, but more people become Christians during that seven year period of time. If you don't hold to this point of view, you think Christians are here for this whole time. They always have been historically here through difficult times and they are going to be here in the tribulation as well. So multiple points of view on that. So let's keep going. If you have questions, we'll answer them, but let's keep going into the vision. So chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. He said, and the voice said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, I, there was a throne in heaven and there was someone seated on the throne. And he who sat there, now he's gonna describe who's on this throne. 
the appearance of jewels. And around the throne was, uh, I'm gonna mark this out because a better translation is halo. There was a big halo, like multicolored like a rainbow and it had the appearance of an emerald. And around this throne, there were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And clothed, they were clothed in white garments and they had golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In apocalyptic literature, when you have thunderstorms, that means God is pronouncing a judgment. It's sort of uh, God's appearance comes with, with power, with thunderstorms, with lightning, with power in the earth. And from the throne came the flashes of lightning and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was like a sea, a huge sea, but it was like crystal. And he said around the throne on each side, there were four living creatures. And these creatures had eyes all over them in the front and the back. The first li uh, living creature looked like a lion. And the second one looked like an ox. And the third looked like the face of a man. And the fourth looked like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a worship service in heaven. It's what, you are, it's what he is seeing. And I'm gonna tell you who all these players are in a minute. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, by the way, let me stop here. They're giving glory and honor and thanks to God. This is, I'll just, okay, spoiler alert, it's God on the throne. And so honor and glory and thanks, three adjectives. What does the number three mean? Three is the divine number. And you'll often see God described in apocalyptic literature in sets of three adjectives. Who lives forever and ever and the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns down before the throne saying worthy are you O Lord our God to receive glory honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and they are created so you literally walks into a worship service in the throne room of God and you've got these 24 elders and you've got these four living creatures. And I think the interesting question for us is, who are these people? And what are they doing in the throne room? So first of all, this description of the throne appears before. Ezekiel, now think Ezekiel is uh, seeing these visions from God and writing down what he has seen in about roughly 600 BC. So think 600, 700 years before the book of Revelation. And at one point he sees a vision of the throne of God. And this is what he says in Ezekiel chapter one. He said, and above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure that looked kind of like a man. And I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, it was like glowing metal full of fire. And from there down, he was just like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was it radiant all around him. This sounds really similar, doesn't it? 
this, this language, this vision that he's seeing in the throne room is the same as what John is seeing. And this is the beauty. He's not seeing God. This is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is like a fourth hand view of God and it's still overwhelming in its majesty and its power. So the throne room is consistent with what Ezekiel saw before. So okay, who are the elders? So there are 24 elders and there are various points of view on this. The uh, big discussion is, are these people, meaning you know, people who have gone to heaven, or are these angels, angelic beings? And so some schools of thought say the way they're described, they sound like a king's council, like the cabinet of the king or the privy council of the king, and that they're angelic beings. But most commentators look at that and say, boy, that number 24 is awfully symbolic. It's 12 plus 12. And so many people say, those are the 12 patriarchs. Remember the tribes of Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was Israel. So the 12 sons of Israel, the children of Israel, those are the 12. And the other 12 are the 12 apostles. And so those 24 together are representative of all of God's people through all of time. In other words, they're like, they're the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs and all of God's covenant people. The Jews had a covenant with God. We as believers have a new covenant with God that that is 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles. And here they are before the throne of God. Others look and say, yes, that's possible, but this is like a temple. This is God, not only in a throne room, but this is a lot like a temple, a holy of holies, where God himself is there. And if you remember in the Old Testament, in, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 24, when the temple was built, they set up priests to take care of the temple. And priests would have to serve a month a year. And so they would go and they would serve and they would do the sacrifices and they would work and they cared for the temple of God. There were 24 orders of priests, 24 clans or 24 different groups. So some people say these are representatives of God's people, us, and this represents the fact that we're all priests of God and we are there to serve God in his temple. That that's what that is symbolizing. But any way you look at it, whether you think it's representatives of the church, whether it's a priestly order, these, uh, that view says they're not angels, they're the souls of people like us and this is representing the fact that all of us are going to be in that throne room praising and worshiping God in heaven. Now that's true, whether or not that's what this vision is saying, but many would say that's what this vision is about. And so different views on who these elders are, but no disagreement about what they're doing. Question. So do you think at the time of the rapture that all of those in the church will be taken up or do you think there will be some who are left behind for specific purposes of God? That's a good question. There's no evidence to my knowledge 
in this text, in any of these texts, or in the New Testament that would indicate that there are some people who are left behind as secret agents. And so that may be true, it may just be that that's not in the text, but it's, it's not to my knowledge in the text. What's more likely to happen, and what you see in kind of the Left Behind books, which at least this part of the Left Behind books is, is pretty scriptural in the sense that not everybody that thinks they're a Christian is gonna get raptured. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many find that, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And then later in chapter seven on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. So I think more, it's more likely that just because someone thinks they're Christian, they might not, be, I'm gonna speak like I'm a futurist now, that they might not be raptured because Jesus might say, I never knew you. Okay, so not so much being left behind because you're a believer and God wants you to do some secret work, but more likely that there will be people left behind because Jesus said, I don't know who you are. We don't actually have a relationship. Good question. Okay, got a couple, I got a few questions here that are, um, I'll call them the John doubters. How was revelation to John verified? Was it verified? Is there a second testimony to this? And another question along those lines is, is it possible that John was just describing what he knew from Ezekiel? Yeah, I'll tell you what, let me save these questions. It's not that I don't wanna answer them. These questions are interesting questions. And I wanna spend the time because what you're fundamentally asking, and this is great, I appreciate you asking this. The fundamental question is, that here's what I'm hearing out of this. Did John really see a vision? And if so, how do we know? Was it bad Mexican food or did he really see a vision from God? I'm joking. But the point is, how do we know that? Or is John having a kind of collective thought? He's so steeped in the Old Testament that whatever experience he's having is being expressed in terms of the Old Testament. That is a very interesting question. And I want, if you don't mind, I'll hold that. And I'll spend, I'll spend quite a bit of time talking about that question on the podcast this Friday morning. So I apologize for not giving you an answer now, but it's gonna take a little time to do adequate justice to that question. But I, I appreciate the question. Okay, so where does the rapture fit in with the three different millennial views, all millennial, premillennial, postmillennial? Okay, so millennial views, we're gonna to get to that in chapter 20. I mean, the millennium happens at the end of the tribulation and chapters four through 19 are the tribulation, the judgments of God. The rapture doesn't, doesn't specifically have anything to do with the millennium. The rapture, if you believe in the rapture, and when I, when I say if you believe in the rapture, what I mean is if you believe the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. Everybody believes in the resurrection. So please don't mishear me. I'm just saying some people, when you say, I believe in the rapture, what people are actually saying is, I think they're gonna be people leave the earth and Jesus is gonna come the second time. People that say, I don't believe in the rapture, they're saying, oh, I believe Jesus is coming again and we're all gonna be resurrected. I just don't think those are two different events. So I just wanna make sure when people say that, you don't think, oh my gosh, you're not a good Christian. 
it's not that they doubt Jesus coming. It's, are those two different events or not? So all the raptures, wherever you think it's gonna happen, happen before the millennium. So they don't really have anything to do. They're, the rapture is either no rapture, meaning it's all the second coming of Christ when that happens, or it's before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or right at the end of the seven years of tribulation, and then the millennium happens if you believe in the millennium. We'll worry about that when we get there, okay? So the rapture and the millennium are not really related. Okay, have a number of questions that want to know something to the nature of if the dead in Christ meet him first, were they not already in heaven? Or if Christians have passed away and they're raptured, but they're already dead, where were their souls hanging out? Great question. You know, Revelation just gets you into everything, doesn't it? Here's the short version of that question. There are two basic views that Christians hold. I'm gonna tell you two orthodox views. I'm not telling you they're both right. I'm just telling you they're both Christian views. They're not heretical or, or anything else. One view is that when you die, your soul goes immediately to heaven, or I suppose, to hell, right? I mean, could be the other way. And so, that's one view. The other view says when you die, it's as though your soul is asleep. You don't experience any passage of time. You close your eyes in death, the next time you open your eyes, oh, it may be 2,000 years later, you don't know. It's like you went to sleep at night and woke up in the morning, and the next thing you see is Jesus, and you're, here he is, okay? That's called soul sleep. It's just a name that's made up that says, you might die in the year 1250 AD, and the next thing you know, you open your eyes and it's 2023, and there you are raised, okay? So two different points of view. That passage in Thessalonians seems to support the second view, which is if the dead in Christ are rising, it means they must have been asleep. They, they couldn't have already been there. But I want you to know that there are two different points of view. That passage just happens to be very supportive of the second view, but there are other passages that Christians would argue, well, no, it's actually, you go straight to heaven. So we've tapped into an ongoing discussion. I will say this, at the end of the day, the dead in Christ rise, whether now or later. And trust me, nobody's gonna get to all the rides in heaven before anybody else. So everybody has an all access pass. Okay. What else? When the temple is restored during the tribulation and sacrifices and offerings start up again, how are Christians who are the temple of the Holy Spirit able to be present at the same time that the Holy Spirit is functioning within a newly built temple? <laughs> okay, great question. That question presupposes quite a number of things. And so I'm not disputing it, but what that question presupposes is that the temple will indeed be rebuilt during the millennium and that there will be sacrifices in the millennium. Not everybody thinks that is the case, in which case that is a moot point. However, I'll cover that view when we get there, if that's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll cover that view when we get to the millennium, but that is, is just a view on what's gonna happen in the millennium. Most interpreters don't think the temple will be rebuilt, but some do, and that would be a fair question in that case. Okay?
Okay, well, let's move on and talk about the four creatures because they are just so weird. All right, so you've got, they are, uh, you've got these four living creatures. Who are they? Well, first of all, there are four of them. And what does the number four tend to represent? The created order. Three is divine, four is created order. Think north, south, east, and west. Uh, the four corners of the earth. The ancient people believed there were four elements, uh, earth, water, wind, and fire. You know, in other words, the number four, just in apocalyptic literature says, hey, you see four, I'm probably talking about the universe. You see three, I'm probably talking about heaven or God. So in some sense, these creatures have something to do with creation. They also have the faces of four animals, which you also see in, again, in the book of Ezekiel, and you'll see it in the book of Isaiah. So you also see these similar creatures. But they have uh, the face of an eagle and a lion and an ox and a man. And most people look at that, and the Jew, by the way, you just have to know this from extra biblical writing, the Jews thought those four creatures, man, eagle, lion, ox, represented the four attributes of all creatures. That is the swiftest, the eagle, the strongest, the ox, the noblest, the lion, and the wisest, the human being. And so you, you basically, what these four creatures are, it's just the symbology is jumping out at you saying, these creatures have something to do with created order or they represent all the created order. Okay, what about the wings and the eyes though? That's odd. And so you see that the wings come from Isaiah, six wings, and they are descriptions of angelic beings called seraphim. The eyeballs and some of the other weird things come from Ezekiel and they are an image of angelic beings that are labeled cherubim. And so both of those visions that they have were of angelic beings. Now, does this mean that they really have six wings and they really have eyes everywhere? It's most likely that that is a vision trying to communicate something to you. The idea of having eyes all over them is that they are ever vigilant. And the idea of having the wings means that they are swift to do God's will. And you will see them carrying out God's will on earth later in this book. So I'll just shorthand this to say, there are different views of who they are, but a pretty safe view would be these are some kind of angelic beings, seraphim, cherubim, but they're angels. And the description of them is not what they actually look like. It is telling you these are ever vigilant servants of God who carry out his commands amongst creation. That makes sense? That's, I, I, when we talk about this over time, you'll say, okay, I'm starting to get a feel for how you read apocalyptic literature. And this won't be so much of a mystery. Well, let's go on because that's not all he saw. He said, then I saw in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne, a scroll written inside and outside and sealed with seven seals. What does that mean? It means ancient times you would roll up the scroll and you would put some wax or some clay on it and you would press it with your crest, your seal. And this had seven seals on it, like it was witnessed by seven people that said, yep, this document is what it says it is, and here's my seal. You come over, put some wax on it, there's your seal. It's been, it's been had witnesses, seven witnesses. 
wait a minute, seven, what does that mean? Okay, you see the number seven and you go, okay, whatever is in this thing is cosmic. It's the whole testimony or it's the whole of whatever it is. It's the perfect complete of whatever it is. He said, and uh, so I'll get, tell you what people think it is and then we'll move on. A lot of people think, futurists think, this is the deed to earth. This is the deed to the universe. And when God opens those seals, he is reclaiming ownership of his creation. Who's ruling his creation now? Satan. Satan. Jesus said Satan is the ruler of this present world. And God is saying it's time for Satan to be judged. It's time for all of Satan's followers to be judged. This is the deed to earth and I own it and I'm going to judge it. So some people think that it's representative of God's right to own his creation. And that's a great idea. And so it's possible that that's what it's talking about. Symbolic view says that could be true, but it's also as you open the seals and you see what happens, this is God's plan of redemption that he's been working on. And the last part of the plan of redemption is all the church age has happened. Christ died for us. We've had the opportunity to be reconciled and now it's time for judgment. So whatever people think that scroll is, as you open those seals, it is the totality of God's judgment or it is the deed of ownership to this universe and God is about to reclaim the ownership of the universe. He said, so I saw the seal, but no one in heaven on earth was able to open the scroll or read it. And I began to weep because no one was worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, do not weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Messiah. The root of David, who's that? Messiah. These are messianic titles. Has conquered. So you have the conquering king so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, you expect to see a king. He said, I saw a lamb standing there. It's one of the most beautiful visions. This resolves the whole problem that the Jews had with the Messiah. You're supposed to be a conquering king, and here you are a suffering servant. You're a Passover lamb. I wanted a conquering king. And what this is saying is, he is. Both of those things. He conquered by dying for us and our sins. And when he comes again, trust me, he's gonna look a lot like a king and he is not happy. All right, so he says, between them I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. That's Jesus. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Okay, we gotta talk about this. So now you already know seven means totality. So does Jesus really look like a lamb that looks like it's been slain? No, what is he trying to say to you? Well, first of all, that's Jesus. This is the one who conquered by his sacrifice. In other words, he defeated death and Satan on the cross. He didn't conquer the Romans on the cross. He conquered death. He conquered Satan on the cross. We used to be mortgaged to Satan. Our souls were his, no more, because he made a way to free us from the slavery. So you get this, every, all of that whole gospel story is tied up in the idea of the lamb. But why does the lamb have seven eyes and seven horns? So when you see eyes, in apocalyptic literature, it means knowledge or vigilance. 
Seven eyes means all knowledge. That means that Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. And horns are power. Seven horns is all powerful. In other words, he said, that is, that is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who knows all and is all powerful. And so you get this lamb is indeed the all powerful, all knowing God. So that's what this vision is, is saying. And that's what the seven horns and seven eyes are. It's a way to communicate to you. He could have just said, and by the way, this lamb, Jesus, he's omniscient and he's omnipotent. But that's not the way apocalyptic literature works. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So that's what happened here. So the lamb comes and is shown to them and what happens? Oh my goodness. It's like a revival in heaven. Listen to this and just listen to the intensity. And when the lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll come back to that later. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're singing this. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. All of the earth. Nobody was left out. Everybody could be reconciled to God. Black, white, male, female, whatever your ethnicity. That four is all of creation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. If you want to be technical, that's 100 million. But it's not trying to be technical. It's like there are like an infinite number of angels and all of a sudden everybody starts singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All praise is due to the lamb of God. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of creation saying to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I mean, this vision is just a knock you down vision of worship in heaven. And so this is chapter four and five. This is the throne room vision. And what I want to tell you about this is, I want to make this point, as we're almost out of time. When we started this vision, who looked like they were powerful? Pliny, writing to Trajan, persecuting the Christians, then and now, looked like they could kill you. The government can put you in jail. People can persecute you and you won't be able to make a living. And they can ask you, are you a Christian? And if you say so, then you're dead. Who's powerful? Well, when you, the churches and the Christians on earth go, oh my gosh, the government is so powerful. These people allied against God. In other words, the forces in this world that are against God, they're so powerful. Who's powerful now? By the end of this vision, what you realize is 
No, Caesar is not Lord. God is actually Lord. And from now through the whole rest of the book of Revelation, and I really want you to get this idea, everything that happens now to chapter 19 comes from this throne. All this wild stuff that's about to happen starting next week is all of it comes from here. Where does Caesar show up in the rest of this book? Not at all. Earthly powers do not control your fate. All power is in that throne and with the lamb. And, the, and so I, it, this vision, you could say, why is this vision here? Can we get to the seals and all the wild stuff that's gonna happen next week? But first, you need to see God. You need to see this worship. You need to realize everything happens because of the power of God, not because of the power of Caesar. And the beauty for you and me is this. God not only has power over your future, because I think all Christians think, yes, God has power over my eternity. What this is saying is it looks like Caesar has power over your present, but even that's an illusion. God has power over your future and your present. And so if you are ever worried about, wow, life seems to be throwing a lot of stuff at me, go read Revelation four and five and be reminded, that's my God, that's who has my future and my present in his hand. Christians have read this, don't ignore this book any longer. Go read chapters four and five and go, yes, that's going on in heaven now and will be forever. And my God is powerful enough. In fact, the powers of this world are nothing compared to the power of our God. Okay? I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to read chapters four and five. And then next week, they start opening the seals and all hell breaks loose. I'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>